quick trigger warning. Although, you know what? I need to record like an intro that involves trigger warnings and also like blah. Yes. <laughs> the podcast is the domestic violence discussion. So please expect uh, conversations on domestic violence. And if you ever need to take care of yourself, if the topic seems like it would be really harmful for you, no judgment, love always, please, 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 self-care first and always. Okay. Coffee. Oh, I, I thought it was wine for a minute. I think that's, that's, it's early to be drinking that. That's fantastic. <laughs> yeah. That's how I do all my interviews. I just like chug a glass of wine before <laughs> I start. Hey guys, funny story for you. When I was a survivor, I remember just hating being around my abuser. Like, I would get the most crippling anxiety. I was physically, like, shaking and sick and nauseous. And just, you know, all around, I just wasn't happy being around my abuser. I mean, I I know you're like, wow, shocking. You don't like being around a violent... Well, you know what? At the time, I didn't realize he was an abuser yet. So, you know, I know, I know. I've learned since then. Now... I could get used to being around him. I mean, in a way that you can like, you know, get into an ice bath and it's like, oh my God, pain. And then it numbs and you're like, okay, I can, I can deal with this. Right. But yeah, I wasn't, I was so not happy. And yet at the same time, I could not imagine cutting this person out of my life. Like I just felt compelled to communicate and please and cater to their ego and their self image. I know what's wrong with me. Right. Well, At the time, I thought, "Mm, this clearly means that nothing is wrong and I'm just being so overdramatic, darling. Yeah, so sensitive. I mean, you could leave, but you won't, so why all the fuss, right? Yeah, it turns out I was trauma-bonded to my abuser. Yeah, I wasn't broken. I was trauma-bonded. Would have been really nice to know at the freaking time, you know, would have helped me feel less crazy, so thanks, life, for not making that super obvious. Anyways, I have learned since, okay, honestly, even still after, you know, like volunteering and doing other advocacy work, now the podcast, I'm still proceeding to learn that I don't know anything about anything, but it's cool because it's humbling and you're here with me so we can learn together. Yay, teamwork. Yay, learning. And today's learning, gonna focus on trauma bonding because trauma bonding has consequences for, you know, survivors who experience it. And also, you know, if you're an ally and you're like, wow, why is my survivor that I'm trying to help all? Well, my abuser is good 90% of the time and the other 10%, well, I can like, yeah, it's probably trauma bonding. We got to like, you got to go in knowing what to expect. So you can, you know, not accidentally trigger them or traumatize them or make them feel, you know, like they're, they're crazy, right? And to help me, I have a therapist with me today. Not my personal therapist. Don't worry, because that would be kind of weird. But she is good. Like, back when we were first chatting, me and this lovely lady, Dr. Michelle Finnerin. It's... <laughs> okay, actually, okay. Um, I got... I have a funny story I want to tell you before we get started. Um, so she was describing to me how when she works with patients, she can sometimes identify who is a domestic violence survivor. Like, they'll walk in and they won't... It's like that uh, TikTok uh, uh, trend. Tell me you're a DV survivor without telling me you're a DV survivor. And from her experience, she said... 
someone perpetually stressed on edge and anxious, a little bit of a perfectionist has to walk the straight line. I don't want to say OCD, but there's an obsessiveness there that they have to do right. They have to be right. They have to be perfect. And I'm nodding. Cool, 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 cool. Huh. Some of this sounds familiar. And suddenly, huh, that sounds like me. Oh, wait. <sighs> Crap. Yeah, she got me. But again, it's part of the fun. You know, fun, sure, that's the right word. Yay, learning, meeting professionals in the field. And it gets me thinking so I can, you know, be inspired to share relevant topics. So anyways, in conclusion, <laughs> this is the beginning. Yeah, we're done. Podcast over. No, um, we are going to do, first of all, I am going to do a brief overview of what trauma bonding is. Just a super quick definition. So Dr. Finneran can help come in and kind of flesh it out and then spill some more interesting tea on unsupportive moms, how to help survivors who are trauma bonded, some characteristics of clients who are experiencing DV. And I mean, like she got me nailed down, so she's pretty good. Okay, let's go. First coming up, real quick, down and dirty, what is trauma bonding? First up, in a very brief nutshell, don't worry if you are still kind of unsure after this, I will come back to it in the future. But trauma bonding is basically what happens when a survivor bonds to their abuser through cycles of love bombing and kindness, followed by abuse and violence. You know, the bond forms through cycles of good, good, wait, escalating, build up, boom, back to good. I mean, biologically, we are programmed to kind of, you know, seek out some comfort when we're feeling bad and we're feeling threatened. But in the case of an intimate partner, well, they're the person we're supposed to be able to turn to when we feel bad, even though they're their abuser. So we end up turning to them, even though they are the abuser. Does that make sense? Okay, let me say it a couple more different ways. Um, since people have a tendency to kind of rationalize their experiences on top of, you know, the abuser making promises to stop and change and I love you, I stand you so hard, this can perpetuate a cycle of survivors who strongly connect to their abuser despite violence. Okay, let me try one more way just so we kind of are all on the same page. Survivors tend to, actually people in general, tend to remember the good, the love, the kiss, kiss, I love you so much, and then minimize the abuse. Since, you know, we seek reassurance from the abuser after they abuse us and then rationalize it all away, encouraged by the abuser cheerleading, yeah, go, I will change, right? Okay. I think that last one was kind of lame. Hopefully um, one of those three makes sense. If not, please uh, shout out. I will try and clear things up. But basically you have an abuser, you know, you started with love and romance because again, you don't start by going on a date and they punch you in the face on the first date, right? There's a buildup period, a courtship, and you form a romantic bond. So when the abuse happens, the reaction is to be like, what? And rationalize it. Oh, it's a one-off versus being like, oh, right? And then you tend, and then, you know, because you've been going to this person for support, you tend to still go for them, even though they're the one that just hurt you. Hopefully that all made sense. Now, here are some examples uh, to help flesh it out even more. If you have a survivor who says like, oh, well, my partner is like 90% good. Well, that's probably the trauma bonding talking. When a survivor is unhappy but can't leave and they feel anxious about leaving, they can't imagine a life without their abuser, kind of like how I was, it's probably the trauma bonding that's uh, influencing that. 
contacting people who are known to be toxic and hurtful, that's likely trauma bonding. You know, when I said in the beginning that I couldn't leave, hooray, trauma bonding would have been nice to know. Are you stuck in traffic and late to work? That really sucks. Maybe learn about some trauma bonding. Ha <laughs> ha, I think I'm really funny. Okay, so now that we have all of this background knowledge, let's dive in, meet Dr. Michelle Finneran and kind of get a little more into trauma bonding and how to help survivors who are trauma bonded. Three, two, one, go. All right. Welcome to the podcast. Hi. Well, thank you for having me, Ariel. Can you please start by introducing yourself, saying hi, and telling us a little bit about uh, your work and your book? Sure, sure. Hello, everyone. My name is Dr. Michelle Finneran. I am, I have a private practice in the Coral Springs, Florida area called Vec and Associates. And it's a private practice um, treating individuals, um, couples, marriages, families, organizations, and businesses. And when I was in my PhD program, I was working for a local jail. And I um, was, I was working with in, inmate in custody, female incarcerated women. And as I was, you know, doing group sessions and speaking to these women, I began to slowly realize that these are really not criminals. These are um, victims of domestic violence and they're incarcerated. So that really absolutely blew my mind um, that they were incarcerated and arrested and through the, the judicial system. And I, I found out really quickly how just flawed the system really is. Your book begins with a lot of focus on survivors not recognizing that they were being abused or knowing something was maybe a bit off, but not realizing that it was a level where they were need to get help. I think the quote from the book was, well, you know, I wasn't getting knocked down having to go to the hospital. Therefore it wasn't that bad. Right. So why do you think that so many survivors find themselves with this mindset? when abuse, when abuse happens, it doesn't happen overnight. It's a natural kind of progression over time. And so what happens is this kind of systemically grows and it feels like for the victim, I think one of the victims, one of the survivors in the books said she feels like she was groomed. It's a gradual kind of process that takes place and it's unnoticeable until you are really in deep trouble and you're kind of like at your lowest point. So because survivors, and I admit I qualify as someone who did not recognize for so many years that I was being abused, since we can't recognize very easily due to the nature of it, what does that mean for both informal and formal supports who are looking to help? You know, to understand that there, you may be, you may be um, assisting someone who's been in an abusive relationship and may not be recognizing it as abuse. So that means you have to take what they're saying, kind of at face value. And there, there's obviously there's different levels of denial and embarrassment and feelings of ashamed for being in a relationship that's abusive. So really uncovering, I want to unlayering the onion and really getting to the core here of what's what therapeutically you're seeing based on what is being said and decoding that because it, they're not gonna say, they're not gonna come out and say, well, I'm in an abusive relationship. Usually that's usually how, not how it works. It usually gets unfolded and it's not the presenting issue as to why they're coming into therapy in the first place, but it gets 
unraveled, like peeling off that onion and you get down to a core where we are discovering some really deep rooted issues here that have been going on and may not have been to the surface. Can you think of an example that you can share where maybe someone came in not for domestic violence, but there were some like little red flags, some markers that said to you, wait a second, I think there is something else going on here. Let's dig into this. Yes. Someone who comes in who is perpetually stressed on edge and anxious and um, very, very, a very nervous energy, um, almost like a, a little bit of a perfectionist, um, you know, has to walk the straight line and be very like, I, I don't want to say OCD, but there's an obsessiveness there that they have to do right. They have to be right. They have to be perfect, you know, <sighs> and, you know, that, that comes from somewhere that comes from somewhere. So I'm, I, I'm <laughs> sorry. I was, I'm sorry. I was about to joke. Huh? That sounds like me. Oh, wait, <laughs> I'm a survivor. <laughs> oh, <laughs> wait. <laughs> <laughs> That's typically what I see at first as a presenting issue, but then I do an actual assessment and I do an intake and I get, I obviously I dive deeper into different dynamics and I realize this person's nervous for a reason. She's anxious for a reason and there's anxiety and maybe OCD and perfectionist because she, she doesn't have a choice in this. She has to be this way. So, I mean, it's, it's, it's hard. It's a hard kind of bridge to kind of, um, bridge to the to the to the victim who's experiencing it but it's something that you know again over time and process is pretty important one of the things that therapists don't do very well when a victim comes in for uh for help is they don't allow the processing intricacy to happen the the therapist is really quick to go to let's fix this let's go to a safety plan and really sometimes the victim just needs to process the abuse probably for the first time. And mm. so when that process is so important for the victim to hear themselves to a professional speak their testimony and speak about their abuse, it can be very, for the victim, can be almost cathartic if done in a very therapeutic way. Um, and, and therapists miss that. They miss that because they a lot of therapists kind of have their own agenda and will not go where the client needs to go, they have, they have a structure and a pace where they want to take the client. And I feel like it does the client a really big disservice when, you know, you have to meet the client where they're at. You know, you have to meet them kind of where they're at, not where you think they should be or where you want them to be. And what you just said, uh, that applies to literally anybody listening out there who wants to help a survivor. You got to meet them where they're at and not push them past where they want to go because this is difficult stuff. So thank you for that. Yes, yes absolutely. So I, I know this is a difficult question because, and people should just read the book, but can you briefly, I guess, give us some of like, the main takeaway points for how people can help survivors, both us informal supports like friends and family and for first responders? So for, for, for informal supports, you know, one of the things I talk about in the book is when you when you have a friend that is in an abusive relationship, the last thing you want to do is kind of ghost them. 
you know, because they keep re recreating the cycle and they keep going back forth. Last thing you need, you want to do is um, ghost them. And that typically happens because their friend now is burnt out and it's interfering in their mental health and their self-care. So what I would recommend for, for friends who have, who have friends that are going through abuse is to really kind of lay out a foundation of what you think, what they think is going on and ask them how, how, how they can be supportive to you. And, you know, and just kind of like take care the friend also may need to set some boundaries for herself or himself to kind of take care of themselves when hearing your friend go through so much violence or trauma, um, maybe traumatizing for the friend or the family member as well. But I find that ghosting or um, defriending just, it just it reinforces kind of like the, the feelings of not worthiness to, to the victim. And one of the things that I think that friends did do that were very helpful is telling the victim, listen, you know, I, I, I'm trying so hard to be there for you and I'm trying to help you, but I think really that you should seek professional help so you have more support. And that advice was taken very seriously for the, for the victims at the time when their friend, particularly their friends, had suggested that recommendation. And they realized that their friend was not able to help them as much as they thought that they could. So therefore, they're referring her, her, her to a therapist, and that was very that was very helpful for the for the for the victim. Oh, one more thing, we, me and Dr. Michelle Fennerin, began talking about um, moms who are not maybe the best allies when you're experiencing abuse. Ugh. This is a, I wanted to include her take on it because I think it was really important, you know, her being a therapist and all that. Um, but in terms of kind of adding my own input, this is kind of all I'm going to do for now because I have a very complex relationship with my mom. She was also abusive and around during the other abuse and it's, it was just a complete shit show. All right. So this will have to do for now, but if there are those of you out there who or like, can I pick up what I'm putting down? Please let me know because if there's enough interest, I will do an episode on it. But for the time being, I'm still kind of processing my own experiences because it's complicated. Until then, Dr. Finneran, please take it away. I, I, I had a feeling like when I was interviewing the survivors that a lot of family and friends did not really understand or... Um, uh, really, the, the 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 survivor did not feel validated by them at all, and mm. so that's why I wanted to address formal supports because you know it, if your daughter is you know in a, an abusive relationship, you want to be able to be emotionally supportive and available to your daughter. And I found that the mother daughter relationship was really strained in a lot of these um, victimizations and abuse abusive relationships. I do know that a lot of survivors, like I, I encounter them all the time, either personally, either the podcast or just I'll be on TikTok and someone will tell a story that I hear again and again. And I'm sure you've heard this as well, where this woman says, oh, yeah, I kept going back to my abuser, which is like, yeah, OK, par for the course. And then the mom will just be like, oh, you're going to go back to him, aren't you? And do you think this comes from just 
like frustration, a lack of understanding, or is this mother projecting her own internalized, you know, projecting her own internalized self and experiences onto her daughter? I think it's a combination of things. I think this is absolutely, you know, when the, when a mother is a victim, it becomes, it becomes like kind of this just generational learned victimization. And so what the daughter sees the mother do as a victim herself is also, you know, kind of like living vicariously through your daughter to try to change the course of her life. Do you know what I'm saying? So it's kind of like a blend of a, a lot of things. It's a, it's a past generational cycle of abuse that has happened between mother and that the daughter has witnessed or seen that, that dynamic. And then it's just like, the mother really not having an emotionally bond, emotionally close bond with their daughter and really getting intimate with the daughter emotionally there physically for her, but doesn't really grasp or understand what the daughter is going through emotionally. And it, it, what I found when I interviewed these survivors, the mothers were just emotionally just not available for them. And it made it made the view so much more impactful and so much harder to break away because, you know, a, a daughter needs, for, especially from a same-sex parent, that validation, that reassurance, that emotional availability. And when they don't have it, they, they you know, what tend, sometimes tends to happen is they seek it out and in a distorted intimate partner relationship. And so what I could say to mothers is don't get, don't get frustrated. Of course, mothers are upset because they don't wanna see their daughter hurting, but be emotionally more validating and available for your daughter because she's going through the struggle and she needs kind of their mother figure to be a role model and to give them really sound advice and support. And uh, I've, what I found is when I interviewed a lot of these survivors is when the mother would bash the abuser or the perpetrator or take sides with the abuser or the perpetrator, it really made the daughter feel completely 100% insignificant. I mean, why wouldn't it if you're being abused and your mom's like, oh no, this guy's perfectly fine. What's your problem? Like, what are you supposed to take what's, away? Yeah, what, what's, what's your problem? Exactly. And that's what happens is, is mothers will look, he's such a great guy. He, fi- he financially supports you, you know, yeah, blah, blah, blah. And, you know, what's, what's going on with you? Like it somehow gets turned around on the victim that something's wrong with her when the abuse is happening and you're 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 the recipient of that and i think whether or not the mother intends it when she does that she is mimicking what the abuser is doing and doubling down in this other layer of trauma and abuse and also in a way sort of making it seem like it's okay because he's yeah. doing it and now she's doing it right right and she and the mother may have been through it so it's almost like it's almost like acceptable you know, and it's becomes a part of the, of the norm, the familial norm, you know, it's till it's until the, the daughter breaks out of that vicious cycle. Cause it's very easy to learn behaviors that we grew up with, not knowing that they're distorted or on dysfunction or maladaptive, right? Because we don't know any different until we, we step out into the real world or you advance in life and you become, um, you, you individualize from your family of origin. Then you begin to realize that, wow, maybe the way my 
my family was wasn't really the healthiest. It's also it's also this learn victimization that daughters learn from their mother when they see their mother in an abusive relationship themselves. Is there anything we haven't covered by this point that you want to address? I think one of the questions that is like the biggest kind of question that comes up with with victims that um, are in a really an abusive relationship is the question presents itself is why don't you just leave kind of mentality and that is kind of like almost like a slap in the victim's face because there's so many components to this question and layers that people don't understand number one just alone and, and this is a big thing and, and people really disregard it and law enforcement and people that are formally trying to treat um, victimization really need to understand that there is a traumatic bonding that is happening between the victim and the abuser. It makes it very, very difficult to untwine that emotional um, connectivity. And even though it's dysfunctional and it's abusive, it's still and it's still very connected. Yeah, it's hard. Well, Michelle, sorry, doctor, <laughs> gonna give you your full title because you've earned it. <laughs> Thank you so much for coming on the podcast and discussing your work and everything that you've done to help this community. So thank you. Thank you so much. I appreciate it, Thank you for having me. Hooray, we did learning together, trauma bonding. It's a term that really, 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 really helped me when I was feeling broken. I was like, oh, sweet, validation station. I am not broken, it's biology, cool. Yeah, again, it would have been nice to know at the time, but I guess better late than never. And hopefully wherever you are at, this was helpful, you know, know that, you know, If you still love your abuser or you still feel like you want to contact them and have them in your life, you are not broken. It is not a sign that the abuse isn't real. It's probably trauma bonding. These things are complicated, so please give yourself some space. And I recommend calling a helpline, the number for the National at the end of the show. Okay. Thank you all for being here today. If you have any questions, please email us at thedvdiscussion at gmail.com. And we are also on a super long list of social media, including, okay, Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, Twitter, LinkedIn, YouTube. I hope I remember them all. Again, if any of you want to go over any of these channels, please email me because I don't want them. So I will just throw them in your direction and run away. That's It's a lot. <laughs> we all have stories and they deserve to be heard. I'll see you next time. If you or someone you know is experiencing domestic violence, please call the National Domestic Violence Hotline at 1-800-799-7233. You can also visit their website, thehotline.org. If you identify as an abuser or a word you might be an abuser, please call the hotline as well. They'll be able to help you. Please remember, you're not alone.